Amen. All right. Hey, uh, today I want to talk real quick. I want to get in and get out as quick as I can. Um, I want to talk about a, a couple of paradoxes. Um, to set that up, let me tell you a story. When I was in middle school, I went to my first ever theme park. How many of you guys have been to theme parks before? How many of you guys like theme parks? All right. Yes, I do too. And uh, when I was in middle school, went to my very first theme park. It was a place called Boardwalk and Baseball no longer exists. Um, if you're a business person, you should go read it and research it because it was an absolute disaster of a business plan. Uh, but the park was pretty cool. It had a novel idea of the Kansas City Royals, the reason it had the baseball part in it. The Kansas City Royals, that was going to be the home of their spring training. And then they built an amusement park around it. So kind of a cool idea. And I remember when we walked in, it was me and several, it was a school trip. And so we went as part of a class and I remember we walked in and the very first thing I noticed was how tall the roller coasters were. I'd never, I mean, my experience with any kind of ride prior to that point was the local county fair, which if you've ever been to a county fair, you know that that's, uh, you know, questionable content in the, in the fairs. So I get there and, and the first thing I noticed is these big, huge, tall roller coasters and uh, I was a little bit intimidated by those. And I, I remember there was this moment that we kind of got in there and the, the teacher was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you guys are free. Make sure you stay in groups, pair up, you know, group up, whatever you have to do. And then you guys go and we're going to meet back here at, I think it was like four o'clock, whatever. And he said, we'll meet back here at this time and then we'll leave. So we, we got in our group, me and a bunch of my buddies, and we started walking and uh, the very first thing out of one of their mouths, and I was hoping that this would never come out. But the very first thing out of one of their mouths was like, hey, let's go get on the roller coaster. And I'm thinking, man, I don't want to get on that roller coaster. How many of y'all like roller coasters? How many of you are terrified of roller coasters? Okay, all right. So you can, for those of you who are terrified, you, would, you can feel my pain and the emotion of what I was going through. And I remember the whole way we start walking towards that roller coaster, there were two things going on. I had this dilemma going on. Number one, like, I, I didn't, I was afraid. I was scared to death of getting on that roller coaster. And number two, I was also scared to death of my friends making fun of me for being scared of roller coasters. So I had this, I had this thing going on. As we're walking towards the roller coaster, uh, I remember just thinking to myself, okay, what kind of an excuse could I come up with to possibly get myself out of having to get on the roller coaster? And the, further, the closer we got, the more panicked I began to get. And then we finally, they jumped in line, and now we're about halfway through line. It was probably about a half-hour wait to get on the roller coaster. And I, I just remember about halfway through, actually, we were kind of going up these steps that led up to the place where the, you know, you're standing in that line where the thing opens, and you get in, and you pull the lap bar down. And I'm scared to death, heart pounding. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, last-ditch effort. Here we go. Let's see if this will work. Hey, how safe are these things anyway? I mean, like, people could die. I mean, did you hear people screaming on the ride? I mean, there's a reason they're screaming. We should not get on this. And they're like, get on the roller coaster. So I did. Went, sat down. I remember that lap bar came down. And, man, I was, I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm trying to peek underneath kind of this pavilion type thing to look up to see how high of a climb it is. And then finally that thing pulled out and ching, 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 ching. And you know, you know what you do? You're, you're trying to tell yourself, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. And the whole way up, I'm going, don't look down, don't look down. Finally, I just kind of took a peek and I was like, oh my gosh. And then you get over the top and you have no choice but to look down. All that to tell you this, uh, that, that thing it did, it scared, the, it scared the stew out of me. And I just remember when I got off of that thing, uh, I actually wrote it two more times that day. <laughs> and so it brings me to a paradox, okay? And this is just something you can jot down. This is, uh, this is part of our, 
are uh, the paradoxes that, there's a couple paradoxes that I just want to give for illustration, and then I want to get into the paradox that we find in the Christmas story. First paradox, really just for illustrative purposes, is the more something scares us, the more you should probably do it. Okay, now I put an asterisk on that because if it's immoral or unhealthy, you probably should not. That's just, it's out of the question. But have you ever noticed the things that scare us the most are the things that really made us feel the most alive? I mean, you think about that roller coaster for me. I mean, I was like, woo! Like once I got a taste of the adrenaline of, of, of falling really fast, I was like, yes, sir, sign me up, get more of it. The bigger they are, the better they are. By the way, just side note, if you ever go up to Ohio, there's a place called Cedar Point that has a roller coaster called Top Fuel Dragster that will launch you from zero to 120. Then you go 300 feet straight up and then over the top and straight back down 300 feet. Just FYI, if you're looking for something to really scare you good, that may work. But think about it. The things that scare us, that engage that fight or flight response, those are the things that really honestly seem to um, be life-changing opportunities. Think about, remember how scared you were the first time you asked her out? You remember that? Like your heart was pounding, you're like, oh man, what if she rejects me? And then you made the step. You, you just said, I, you know what, I'm gonna overcome it. I'm scared of rejection, but I'm gonna step out there and do it. And you asked her out, and here you are today with her in church, hopefully. Then there was the other heart-pounding moment, like you, you got her to date you long enough for you to consider marriage, and then you asked her to marry you, and so there's kind of the, the nerves kind of built up there. Like, I, I don't know what, some people, I don't know what they're thinking when they go to these ball games. Like, you should know for sure that she's going to say yes before you get on TV, okay? I, I'm, that's just for what it's worth. But you had that heart-pounding moment of like asking her out. How about the job interview? I mean, I don't know anybody that just loves job interviews. But you do. You put yourself out there. You, the more scared we are, the more likely it is that you should do it. You, you go put your application in. They call you back and you go sit in front of somebody who's going to ask you questions to determine whether or not you're qualified enough or good enough to have the job that you've applied for. How about this one? Telling the truth when it's painful. Have you ever had to tell the truth to someone that you knew that, okay, when I say this, it's, it's, it's going to be painful, but it needs to be said. Telling the truth to someone even when it's painful, that's another thing that scares us, but yet at the same time, it's, it's life-changing opportunities, not just for us, but hopefully for the people that we're talking to as well. Or I don't know if any of you in here have ever done this, but what about starting a business? Taking money that you've earned or going and taking out a loan to start a business that you just don't know. How is this going to work out? Is it going to turn out well? Is it going to make enough money to, to sustain itself and to sustain our family? I mean, that's a huge risk. But so paradox number one, there is, there, the more things something scares us or scares you, the more likely you should probably do it. Let me share with you another few more of life's paradoxes. The more, if you, ever, the more you try to impress people, the more you try to impress people, the less impressed they'll be. We've seen those people before, right? I mean, we saw them. The guys on the playground that said, oh, watch me, I'm on, you know, and then it fails. Here's a, here's a third one. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. I find that to be for sure true, amen. I, I find that to be for sure true about scripture. Like the more I read, the more I learn, the more I go, man, I, I got a whole lot still to learn. Here's another one. The more available something is, 
the less you want it. The more available something is, the less you want it. I think marketers have understood that. And here's another one. This is, a, this is the last one that we'll cover before we dive into the actual uh, paradoxes that exist in the text today. Um, the only constant is change. You ever notice that? It's paradoxical. The only constant in this world is change. And so what I hope for us to see today is that there are two major paradoxes of the Christian faith that are on full display in the Christmas story. So if you would, let's uh, read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to shoot straight through, and then we'll kind of pick back up and comment on a few things. All right. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went, from, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw a child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, go, then opening their treasure, treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. All right, now. So there are a couple of paradoxes in the story of the birth of Jesus that I want us to take a look at and I want us to consider um, as they apply in our own life, but they are beautifully portrayed here through Matthew. Um, paradox number one, if you're taking notes, the pursuit of Jesus is often more about self and less about Jesus. The pursuit of Jesus is often more about self and less about Jesus. When the wise men saw the star and they show up they are there to worship the king of the universe the king the star was pointing them to was Jesus the king they met was a guy named Herod upon hearing about the prophecy that we just read upon hearing about the prophecy through the wise men and knowing that the star um, was showing and uh, leading them to the place where Jesus the king the king would be born, uh, Herod begins seeking Jesus too. So Herod hears the story. They, he sees these wise men. They, he knows that they're seeking the one who is to be born king of Jews. Herod hears it says, hey, you give report. You go find him. Tell me where you find him because I want to come and worship him too. And then, of course, we know that in um, Herod's motives were not pure. Uh, you know, they, the wise men were told, hey, don't go back. Don't tell him where it's at, but what we see in verse 16, if you skip down there, with this is not in the computer, but I just want to read it to you. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, in other words, the wise men didn't come back. And when he realized that they weren't coming back and they had deceived him, 
It says he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that, had, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we know that his motives were wrong in the pursuit of Jesus. Like the pursuit, he says, I want to come worship too, but his motives were completely wrong. Now before we go into criticizing Herod mode, let me just say this. I have a little bit of Herod in me. And I believe that you may very well have a little bit of Herod in you as well. The full teaching of the Bible, the full teaching of Scripture as we read it, is that the source of the world's evil is every human heart. The prophet would say that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? It's the reason why there are moments in your life and there's moments, I know there's been moments in my life that a thought will pop into my head and I'm like, where did that wicked thought come from? And then I know it's in that moment that the truth of scripture is revealed to me that yes, the root of all evil comes from the heart of man. King Herod's reaction to, to Christ is in this sense a picture of us all. When Jesus arrives on earth, he's showing up as a king looking to establish a kingdom. Now, it's a kingdom that many people, as we understand scripture, never fully understood that knew Jesus when he was on earth. But Jesus, no less, shows up as a king to establish his kingdom. And the Bible tells us that in our natural state that we are not looking to relinquish our kingdom in order to worship Jesus or even to help him build his no, in our natural state, we are a bunch of Herods attempting to keep Jesus from taking his rightful place, which is on the throne of our lives. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, and this is revealing to us what our natural state is like without understanding and putting ourselves in the context of Scripture, when we just think outside of Jesus and his kingdom, our minds go here to what Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, is what Paul would write in Romans chapter 8. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, the self-righteousness, and the self-absorption of every human being. Each of us wants the world and listen, we criticize people for this, but we are the world's biggest hypocrite because we're all like this. We, our heart's desire is for the world to revolve and orbit around us. We're all that way. We all find ourselves in places like this. We all, that's why conflict happens because it's what I want versus what you want. It's your timeline versus my timeline. It's your desires versus my desires. It's your restaurant versus my restaurant, right? Like, hey, where are we going to eat? Now, I don't know about you. I just don't even, I don't even vote when that question comes up. It's like, hey, y'all pick. It'll be a lot easier. But what do we do? I mean, it's all like our whole mindset. It, it flows out of our heart. Our flesh just tries to get everything in this world to revolve around the person that we look at in the mirror every day. 
We don't want to serve God or our neighbor. It's not our natural instinct. We want them to serve us. We want God to serve us. Think about our prayer life. How do we pray? God, would you do this for me? If you would do this for me, you'll be a bigger and greater God. We don't want to serve our fellow human, uh, human beings. We don't want to serve our neighbor. We want them to, to serve us. That's what our flesh craves, right? Which is why it's so important for us to do exactly what Scripture tells us to do, to crucify the flesh. That I am, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. That is what we have to do daily. The Apostle Paul would even say the words, I die daily. We have to wake up tomorrow and put ourselves back on the altar and go, God, let it not be about my world and my wants, but be about you and what you desire to do. In every heart, then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by any. that may compromise its omnipotence and its sovereignty. And that's us. That's every one of us. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Like, well, hold up. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Now, like, the whole part about, like, I get that there is none righteous. Like we can all come to terms on that. But Paul, are you, are you serious when you write that there, like, that there is none who seek God? Because the world is filled with people who apparently are seeking God in some capacity. Like that can't be a true statement. The answer, the answer to that dilemma is the answer of Christian theologians over the centuries has been to make one of two distinctions. The first one, they argue, is to want the things God, that, that we, that the pursuit of God really is more about the things that we want, right? That we are spiritual gold diggers looking for Jesus to fulfill the things that we want him to give us. Listen to me, if you're after eternal life when you pursue Jesus and not Jesus, that's idolatry. If you're after heaven and not Jesus, that's idolatry. If you're after ease and comfort of life and not Jesus, that's idolatry. And that is one of the, it's one of the answers that theologians have come up with is the argument that we want the things of God and not necessarily his son Jesus. Many, many people seem to be seekers. But again, we we find ourselves in this place of being really just spiritual Gold diggers. The second argument that theologians have come up with to the argument that, are you telling me that there are none who seek God? Is this, that people may seek God as they want him to be. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, like I read it and I go, God, why did you have to put that in there? I I literally remember, I I had a conversation with a, a person who once told me that I don't like that verse, so I've just marked it through in my Bible. Well, that'll work out well. And though we would never actually do that, we all have to admit there are passages of Scripture that's like, God, I wish you would not have put that in there. 
And so the, the sec, when, so the second theological argument for the reason that people would say that, there are, that when Paul wrote there are none who seek God is because we're not seeking the actual true God. We're seeking a God that we have made up in our own mind that's not the God as revealed by Scripture. And that shows us that one of the, there's one of the hidden truths of Christmas. It's, it's this idea, this dark account of King Herod's lust for power points to our natural resistance, even hatred to the claims of who the God of Scripture genuinely is. We have a tendency to create gods of our own liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as the absolute king of the universe, the one that was born in a manger, which brings me to paradox number two. Hope is found through surrender, which makes no sense. Because if, like in every picture of surrender that we have ever seen in a movie or a story played out, when, when a king takes over another kingdom and they defeat their army and the king comes out to offer his surrender, you don't look at that and go, well, that's just a picture of hope. When you surrender something, it would almost seem like you're giving up hope. But the paradox of Christmas and the paradox of Jesus is that hope is found through surrender. Christmas means that the king has come into the world, but the Bible tells us that Jesus comes as a king twice, not once. The second time he will come in power. The second time he's going to come Man, he's going to come riding on the clouds. He's going to come back as a conquering king. He's going to come down and just wipe out everything. He's going to come and show his power when he comes the second time. But when he came the first time, Jesus did not come in power. Jesus shows up as a baby. God comes to earth, not in strength, but in weakness, to a poor family in a stable. Jesus doesn't behave like a king that the world expects. He did not have any academic credentials. You know, he didn't, he didn't go to the Harvard of his day. He didn't go, you know, he didn't, he wasn't that guy. He did not have any of the academic credentials. He didn't have any of the social status. He wasn't pursuing those things. When Joseph brought his family back, he settled as far from the centers of royal power as he could when so when this all breaks out with Herod and he goes killing the babies, Joseph is warned to take his family and flee. So he goes to Egypt. There were a group of uh, Israelite people that had a, a, a community there in the Egyptian area. And so after a while, when he knew Herod was dead, that he takes his family and he moves. And when he moves, he doesn't move to Jerusalem. He moves to a place called Nazareth. So he wasn't just simply born in a manger. He grew up a Nazarene. Now what did that mean? What did it mean to grow up a Nazarene? Well, in John 1, Nathaniel learns that Jesus is from Nazareth. So Philip comes to faith in Christ. He, he follows Jesus. He decides to follow Jesus. And then he runs to tell his brother Nathaniel, Hey, I have found the one that the, the prophets spoke of. I have found the one who is the Messiah. And he's like, Really? Like, yeah, he's this guy from Nazareth. And to which point, Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
See, everyone in Judea looked down upon anyone who grew up in the backwoods of Nazarene. I mean, none of us in Osceola can understand or relate to that. But Jesus wasn't born in the hub of Judaism. He wasn't born in Jerusalem where the temple was at. He wasn't born to a a wealthy family. Jesus came to earth as a baby, born in a manger, grew up a Nazarene, and everyone in Judea would look down upon this. Yet, as the text shows, God arranged things so that was exactly where the Messiah of the world would grow up. The world has always despised people from the wrong places, haven't they? The world has always despised people with the wrong credentials. Well, how is it? How is it that a five-foot-nothing quarterback can be the quarterback of the Georgia Bulldogs when we got all these five stars, right? Everybody thinks that way. How is it that this person with no background could end up being in the position that they're in? I mean, don't you know that they're from, don't you know that they don't come from a family that is, and that's the dig. People always look down on those types of people. The world has always despised people from the wrong places with the wrong credentials. And the greatest person in the history of the world was born in a manger and came from Nazareth. It's throughout the Bible. God initially brings his message not through the Egyptians, not the Romans, not the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the most powerful countries on the planet in their time, but through the Jews, a small nation and a little race that is seldom power. He dispatches and disposes of a champion named Goliath, not with the biggest man in the military, not with the one who has the most ribbons down his chest plate. No, he disposes of a champion named Goliath with a little teenage boy named David, who, oh, by the way, his own father didn't think enough of to invite him to the anointing ceremony when Samuel showed up to anoint the next king. But that's how God works. How does he talk to Elijah? Does he talk to Elijah through the earthquake or the wind or the fire? No. He talks through, to Elijah through a still small voice. In, in ancient times, in the Old Testament, when the oldest son was born, he automatically inherited what would be the majority of the inheritance because he is the firstborn son. He got all the wealth, and the second younger sons had no social status. They had no privileges, no special privileges. But how does God work? God communicates, or God works through Abel, not Cain, through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau, through Ephraim, not Manasseh, through David, and not his older brothers. At a time when women were valued for their beauty and their fertility, God chose a woman named Sarah, not Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel. He chooses Leah, not Rachel. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children. Hannah, who can't have children. He uses Samson's mother, who can't have children. He uses Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children. Why? Why does God do it the way he does it? 
Because over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl that no one else wants. I will choose the boy that everybody had forgotten. Why? Is it, is it just because God is so into the underdog role that he just, no. He is telling us something about salvation itself. What he's telling us is, is that every other religion and moral philosophy of the world talks about how you have to work more, work harder, do more to earn your way into the approval of God, which is interesting because I think I've shared with you before when we went to, um, years ago, I, I was able to go over to Indonesia and we got to go over and share the gospel and you get over there and it's predominantly Muslim and when we, before we went over, we had to go through a training on how to share our faith with the Muslim people. And so they start teaching us about all these things that Muslim people have to do in order to have a good chance at going to heaven. There's all these works. You gotta pray. You gotta do all these prayers. You gotta give your alms. You gotta make the trip. You gotta do all the stuff. And the interesting thing about it was that when you would ask, one of the, one of the ways that you work the gospel into the whole presentation is no Muslim who on his best day, who has done all the right things, who has prayed enough, who has given enough, who has made the trip to Mecca, none of them know for sure that they're going to go to heaven when they die. If you ask a Muslim, they will say only Allah knows. The only true way is, as we've been taught and we've heard, the only true way to die is to martyr, be a, become a martyr. The only true way to make it to heaven, the only way that you could have confidence in that is to martyr yourself. And so... It's just an example of all the other world's religions trying to work their way back into God's good favor. But Jesus, and through the birth of Jesus arriving here on earth, and how God has used over and over the least, the lost, and the left behind, God is using them to teach us something. These other world religions appeal to the strong, the people who can pull it together, the people who can summon up their own salvation. But only Jesus says this. He says, Jesus would say, in paraphrasing all of the New Testament text, Jesus is saying, I've come for the weak. I've come for those who admit they are weak. I'm coming for those who admit that they can't do enough, earn enough. I will save them not by what they do, but what I do for them. Throughout Jesus' life, the apostles and the disciples kept saying to him, is this now the time that you're going to establish your kingdom? Jesus, when are you going to take power? When are you going to save the world? And Jesus would continually say, you don't understand, I'm going to lose all my power and die to save the world. At the climax of his life, Jesus ascended not to a throne. He ascended to a cross. See, surrender... Hope is found through surrender. I want to read you Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And here's what it says. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, since we have just been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we, we profess our faith in what Jesus did. We profess our faith in that I can't, I've come to the realization that I cannot do enough, that I am a sinner 
apart from God, apart from the grace of God, I'm a sinner, and there is nothing that I can do. There's no works that can be done. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of money that I can give that can earn my way back to God. And so Jesus, or, or Paul is writing this, and he said, so therefore we have been justified by faith, faith in those things that we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, watch this, endurance. That suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. hope. He, and it all begins, it's amazing. That we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. It's amazing that he would start with suffering. I don't know about you, but when I get to places where the suffering is heavy, it's usually because I've gotten to the end of my rope. When I've gotten to the end of me, when I've gotten to the end of my ability to stop the suffering. And what do we do when we get to that point of suffering? We surrender. We see it happen all the time with people who are sick. They get tired of fighting and they surrender. They surrender their life. I remember uh, the conversation with my mother was very much that. This is why I came here. This is why I came to hospice. This is why I came here. I'm tired of the fight. And he goes on to say in verse 5, he says, and watch this. So character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's Love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's paradoxical. Hope is found in surrender. That's what the birth of Christ teaches us. Jesus gave up heaven to come to earth, was born not as a triumphant king, but as an infant from a no-name town, not from a politically strong or a financially strong family to show us that in his surrendering of his his wants, his desires, his own person, he came to please the Father. He came to die a death that we were supposed to die so that we could live a life that he created us to originally live Christmas is an invitation to surrender. That's what it is. Jesus modeled it for us. And so when we think about, when we sing these songs about this, this baby lying in a manger, I hope from now on it would conjure up in all of our hearts the reality that when Jesus came to surrender those things, to lay all of those things aside, that he might come to take on flesh, that he might come to pay for our sins, that he might come to lay his life down, that we might find it. I pray that when we think about this whole manger scene, that it reminds us to, if Jesus surrendered for us, he's giving us an invitation to surrender our lives for him, and in doing so, experience the paradoxical truth of surrender. When we surrender is when we find hope. Why? Because when we surrender our right to the throne of our life, put Jesus on it, begin to follow him, guess what happens? That is when we find life. And it's when we find hope.
Let's pray.